Man, Marsh, your review of the first Coffin Joe made me laugh so hard. (laughs) (laughs) What, did you letterbox it? I didn't see it. Yeah, he was just quoting an Onion article, the headline of, like, atheist goes door to door trying to scare people. (laughs) Well, it's, yeah, it's from a a 2001 Onion headline that's like, Marilyn Manson now going door to door trying to shock people. And that's what I thought of when watching At Midnight I'll Take Your Soul. I'm like, yeah, atheist going door to door trying to shock people. It's very appropriate. <laughs> it certainly is. Save it for the pod, but those townspeople, they put up with way more than I would ever put up with, that's for sure. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Tell you the truth, this guy's starting to get on my It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, folks, and welcome to another edition of The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts. My name is Andrew Stasulis, and I am joined here by... Eric Marsh. And... Ryan Saunders. For those who don't know, The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of us selects a topic for the week. And the other two are challenged with bringing films to the table that meet the topic, address the topic, brush up against the topic, whatever. We've had it all. We love it all. It was my turn to pick this week. I was up and, you know, I guess, I guess subconsciously I kind of had this topic in my mind because of our, our recent conversation around the film, Young Einstein, the, the brainchild of one Yahoo Sirius. And, you know, as it turns out, that film was basically like conceived by him, written by him, directed by him, starring by him and, And the phrase indeed did appear in that episode, vanity project. And this was just sort of like then in my mind, you know, the idea of the vanity project. And that's what I wanted. I wanted to do a a deep dive into that entirely as its own topic. So I asked these two to bring me films that were... Vanity projects, films that were almost entirely the brainchild of a single mind, a single beautiful mind doing as much as possible to bring this vision, this vision of excellence onto the screen. Uh, specifically, you know, I, I, I kind of pushed them to to try to select films in which, you know, the the person who was conceiving of this was also trying to like really showcase themselves as, (laughs) as an artist, as, as a talent, as someone who deserves this platform. And if no one's going to give it to them, God damn it. They're going to, to, to erect that platform with their blood, sweat, tears uh, all by themselves if they have to. 
So that's what I asked for, and uh, that's what I got. <laughs> boy, oh boy. Folks, let me be the first to say this week here on the Gauntlet Podcast, God is dead. <laughs> and these two and their, their buddies killed him, or her, or it, whatever. God's dead, folks. And that's basically what we're going to be discussing here with the two films that uh, were selected. So without further ado, let's, uh, let's bury God together on the podcast. Um, I believe Marsh has the earlier of the two films. So Marsh, well, why don't you tell everybody at home what you brought for us this week? Well, when I think about cinematic vanity projects, you know, that often includes this this person, this creator uh, in front of the camera uh, as well, you know? And so I think my mind sort of went to actors uh, who directed things, you know, immediately. And uh, the person that I ended up sort of settling on had been had been swirling around uh, my existence because, of course, uh, he was in a film we talked about last week, The Last Wagon, uh, in just a bit part. And I was also this week in class teaching, I'm teaching tomorrow, uh, The Killing, which also features this actor and filmmaker. This is a man who was hated by Kirk Douglas, beat up by Richard Widmark, attacked by Elia Kazan, almost choked to death by Seymour Cassell, kicked in the ribs by Carl Malden, and one time he forced John Cassavetes to put on a dog attack suit and be attacked by Rottweilers. <laughs> yes, I am talking about the actor Timothy Carey, the very tall, lumbering, mealy-mouthed sort of bit uh, player legend from the 1950s and 60s, famous, you know, first for uh, being in crime films like Andre de Toth's Crime Wave and Kubrick's The Killing, but of course he's also in The Wild One and Paths of Glory and in all these other movies and a very unique and unsettling screen presence. So, of course, uh, Timothy Carey, being the kind of weirdo that he was, uh, decided, you know, at a certain point, well, looking like he looks, he's certainly never going to be the lead of a Hollywood film, uh, however tapped into uh, the industry he is. And so he set out in 1958 to make a film that would indeed showcase his talents both as a performer and a writer, director, producer, editor, and uh, all-around madman. <laughs> The film was made over uh, a number of years, and uh, I was going to even say earlier, uh, hard to say when this movie actually came out or was finished, because it was something that he worked on uh, for the rest of his life, and in fact, uh, it never had a, an actual release. He just sort of showed it 
over the years. Uh, originally shown in 1962, and then he did a recut a couple years later, and this sort of went on and off until uh, he died in the 1990s. It is, I guess, to give uh, give our audience an idea here, uh, somewhere in the realm uh, of like a face in the crowd, the Ilya Kazan film, but sort of like more. Uh, John Waters, Ed Wood esque <laughs> sort of you know thing going on, um, and yeah, in in the film, of course, uh, Timothy Carey plays an insurance salesman named Clarence Hilliard who gets fed up with his humdrum lifestyle and uh, quits his job, starts calling himself God, becomes a rock and roll messiah, and then runs for president, and. That's, uh, did I even say the title of the movie yet? I don't know if you have. (laughs) Incredible. He is the world's greatest sinner. Take my hand! From, yes, 1962 (laughs) or 1960, whatever. Uh, And that's the gist of it. It is a showcase for Timothy Carey to speechify, freak out, make out with people young and old, uh, play around with snakes, paint or or, uh, glue a a triangular goatee on his face. Um, And, you know, interestingly, there is some, you know, some people who worked on the film that uh, I want to mention who are notable. Uh, A significant chunk of the film was shot by a very young Ray Dennis Steckler, a.k.a. Cash Mm. Flag, a.k.a. Man of Many Names, who would go on to be a prolific exploitation drive-in and porno director, um, most known probably for uh, the incredibly strange creatures who stopped living and became mixed-up zombies. But uh, in addition, there's reports that I couldn't confirm, but multiple sources say that at some point Edgar G. Ulmer was involved, uh, maybe just as a consultant or maybe something more. But uh, in the credits, there's like five cinematographers credited, you know, this thing was cut and recut. Um, And of course, you know, despite not having a a release and not really being seen by a lot of people, it was seen by famous people and people in Hollywood. So it sort of gained a reputation over the years. Uh, And of course, fans of this film include John Cassavetes, Martin Scorsese, Quentin Tarantino, Crispin Glover, to no surprise there. Uh, and, And many other people sort of love this film for, you know, the reasons we all love Timothy Carey, a truly unique and idiosyncratic presence on the silver screen. So, uh, yeah, that's the world's greatest sinner. You know, you forgot to mention <clears throat> the musical contribution. Oh, gee, yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, I guess I'll mention it. Yes, a a 23-year-old Frank Zappa contributed uh, music to the film, which is, of course, crucial because as Clarence, a.k.a. God, becomes a rock and roll messiah, um, there's some good good musical numbers uh, going down here. And Zappa, of course, uh, later went on uh, national television and called this film uh, the world's worst movie. (laughs) Well... We'll certainly uh, explore that idea tonight. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I was I was uh, looking at uh, the New York Times obituary for Timothy Carey, and its uh, its headline simply was Timothy Carey, 
a character actor. And I thought that's maybe the 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 best and 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 uh ultimate example of of that title, I think. A character actor. <laughs> yeah, no doubt about that. Yeah. All right, yes. Um thank you, Marsh. Ryan, what about you? What did you bring to the table? It's funny that you bring up Timothy Carey's obituary because the film and character that I have brought to the podcast this week was a figure that had its genesis in a nightmare of the creator's own death. And before I go into the details of that, I will I will say, you know, when I was looking into different films, different types of vanity projects, I was I was exploring a few different options and then I had, you know, found myself veering towards a, a specific character that I was familiar with and had seen images of a man with a with a top hat, his his little beard and goatee, a long black cape, but most distinguishing feature of all were his extremely long fingernails. Someone that presents a very ghoulish image on screen, kind of one of the classic looking horror icons. And I am of course speaking of Coffin Joe. And I had never seen any of the Coffin Joe films. And so, of course, my first instinct was, well, I should just pick the first one. We should just, you know, talk about Coffin Joe, the genesis, right? When you think of Vanity Project, you think about someone, okay, here's my chance. I'm going to put together this film. I'm going to give myself a platform and I'm going to announce myself and say, I can do this. I'm putting it all together. This is my work. But I kept thinking about how funny it was that there are so many Coffin Joe films and how much creative control that the director, Jose Mojica Marins, sort of took over as he kept making more and more of these. And so specifically, I found myself looking at This Night I'll Possess Your Corpse, which is the second Coffin Joe film that came out in 1967. It is a sequel to the original film At Midnight I'll Take Your Soul from 1964, which I also had a chance to to check out. But This Night I'll Possess Your Corpse was written, directed, starring, and produced by Marins, and he plays the titular Coffin Joe. The, the first film, having checked it out, you know, doesn't really leave a lot of opportunity, presumably, for a sequel. It does feel as though he is bested by the end of it. He finds himself splayed out on a table. His eyes are bulging out of his head. It really doesn't look like the, the corpse of Coffin Joe is, is salvageable. But viewer, don't worry, because there, there are some excuses that are put into place right at the top of this night, I'll Possess Your Corpse, where we learn not only has his sight been restored, our filmmaker and our vain hero has, has his vision back, but he walks onto the frame, announces himself that people will learn the truth, even if I have to make their eyes run red with blood. And then there we have it, directed by Jose Mojica Marines, right after that announcement at the top of this film. So it's just, a, you know, like a brief overview of what Coffin Joe is. Coffin Joe is an edgelord of sorts that has really sort of taken over this town and 
kind of terrorized everybody in it with his own psychosis and his own crazy ideas about the immortality of the blood. He is totally obsessed with getting the perfect fetus into the exact right woman so that his bloodline can continue. It's one of the only things that this guy has got going on in his life. You know, he doesn't seemingly have the proper outlet. And um, that's his quest. It's something he fails to achieve in the first film, and it's something that he continues to pick up in This Night I'll Possess Your Corpse. The general structure of this film is that Coffin Joe, in searching for the perfect woman, ca- uh, kidnaps about six different women in town and houses them at, at his place. He's gotten an assistant named Bruno, who is very much like an Igor-type figure in the film, and he puts these women through a series of really horrifying tests that involve, you know, traditional spooky stuff. You've got snakes, you've got tarantulas, and he wants to see who's really got the stomach for this, you know, who can who can put up with me because that's a symbol of their their purity and the, you know, the pure blood son that I will be able to bequeath because from this situation. And it's just a series of terrors, right, as he's trying to figure out, you know, who can bear his son. The town totally fed up with this guy. They try to come with some options of how to take him down. And, you know, the most, the majority of this film is is particularly vain, right? We have Coffin Joe stomping around, going on excessive monologues about his uh, philosophy, if you want to call it that. It's a bit limited in its perspective, but it is delivered with such fervor and intensity that you can't help but wonder, you know, as much as this film is obviously not endorsing his beliefs, there is something sinister going on here deep in the heart of Jose Mojica Marins. And, you know, this film is really, these films are really notable because the first one in particular has been called the first horror film of Brazil. So it's sort of like a, an icon in that sense in the country. And when I was thinking about, you know, how vain these projects were, I was quite taken by this quote from Marine where he talked about uh, how the idea of the character came to him in a dream where he said, in a dream I saw a figure dragging me to a cemetery. Soon he left me in front of a headstone. There were two dates of my birth and my death. People at home were very frightened, called a priest because they thought I was possessed. I woke up screaming and at that time decided to do a movie unlike anything I had done. He was born at that moment. The character would become a legend. Coffin (laughs) Joe. So, you know, this is something that was very deeply personal to to Mr. Marine. And, um, you know, it's a man who is at war with the world around him, and he's at war with God. He's a definitive atheist. That's another one of his transgressions that finds itself at odds with Brazilian society, particularly from the 60s. Uh, I was into it. You know, these films are wild. They kind of reminded me of 30s monster movies in certain respects. He's clearly like referencing a lot of that type of, you know, stylish stuff. But it feels like a product of its time. It is something that is preoccupied with the the issues that Brazil was facing in the 60s and being a very religious country at the time. This is someone who's actively rejecting that. And um, it's just... To me, it felt like the ultimate vanity project, the return of Coffin Joe. So excited to talk about that. That is This Night I'll Possess Your Corpse from 1967. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you both uh, again. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, full disclosure, I had been 
uh, familiar with both of these uh, films and certainly like the filmmakers in one capacity or another. And uh, a few years ago, uh, I had stumbled across the world's greatest sinner and was like, my God, what a mess this sounds like. I have to check it out. And I had started watching it and I really couldn't remember at what point I bailed, but I did bail at a certain mm. point. Um, and I don't even know if it was anything to do with maybe just, you know, I had something better to do that day and was like, I'll come back to this. And then it, it just sort of lost itself somewhere in, in my brain. Cause there are certain things that I really vividly, uh, remembered and other things, which, which felt like a revelation, but I sort of knew what I was getting into, uh, going back to it. And I had seen a Coffin Joe film at some point, but couldn't really remember which one. And it certainly wasn't this one. Okay. Uh, and he had made a lot of them uh, in different forms and, you know, official and unofficial Coffin Joe mm -hmm. films. Um, I'm pretty sure even I remember coming across like a box set that somebody had put out at some point, maybe Anchor Bay or somebody like that. So Coffin Joe was somebody I always wanted to, to get into, you know, and, and, and knowing anytime, you know, for me that there's, there's some filmmaker out there that has put out such a body of work is always very interesting to me. I'm, I'm intrigued by it. I, uh, you know, if there's a, that much out there, it's gotta be good, right? There's gotta be something there. Uh, and I have to say, you know, um, there certainly is <laughs> more <laughs> than I uh, could have even imagined in my wildest dreams or nightmares. So yeah, these, uh, these really did um, showcase exactly the kind of thing that I was sort of asking you both to bring. Um, I think already in your intros, you guys both alluded to one of the, I think, most obvious connections between the two, which is that both of these films are about um, men who are, you know, espousing a very, very explicitly atheistic view of the world and and more so want others to convert, perhaps to their way of thinking. So really, as I sort of jokingly said in my intro, like these are both, both movies about guys who are, in my view, trying to like kill God, trying to like eliminate God's presence from our uh, daily lives. And I guess uh, I, I'm totally comfortable in saying they both sort of go about it in the same way. Sure. <laughs> I, you yeah. know, you know. I think so. <laughs> I feel like Timothy Carey's version feels slightly more like a multi-level marketing scam than Coffin Joe's. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they really do just, yeah, sort of like berate everyone around them. Absolutely. I mean, to me, yes, I was thinking about you know Dostoevsky's quote right the classic one like if if god is dead then then everything is permitted right yeah. and both of these films are wrestling with that question the one of the questions of the 20th century right especially after uh what happened in the first 50 years right so here we are in the 60s asking yes 
God, you know, what does God have to do with any of this, right? So, yeah, they both are preoccupied with the, with the same thing, and, and their characters uh, espouse variations on this kind of, like, radical humanism or Nietzschean fascism or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's, 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 you know, what I, I, I really am appreciating about this double feature, you know, because again, the, the topic is already one about, you know, um, maybe people who are experiencing narcissistic behavior behind a camera, feeling somewhat megalomaniacal, running away with themselves. And, and, you both took it right to the top that, that not only do we have projects that are designed solely by a single individual to showcase how great they are, but they're so great and they're so awesome that they're going to fucking, you know, stab God in the throat with a broken bottle, right? They are going to eliminate God through their, uh, many, many, many skills and, uh, fashion statements i guess and it's funny because it almost feels like the vain filmmaking practices perfectly match the goals of the characters as they're at war with god because when both of them are trying to take a broken bottle to god's neck it seems like the idea right is that both of them are seeking immortality in certain respects because Clarence promises eternal life immediately to Alonzo, his gardener. He says, How would you like to be something other than just a gardener? Sure, but what? How would you like a job following me? Where? To eternal life. Where is that? That's right here on Earth. I have a plan. A plan that nobody else has ever had before. Plan that's gonna make me a god. And that's all a part of his his political party and his campaign of granting eternal life to everyone, you know, having older widows give up their money because eternal life is down the pipeline. Oh, nobody gives me like you for a long time. You make me feel so young. I'm gonna make you young forever. And then the same thing for Coffin Joe, obviously, explicitly looking for immortality through the purity of blood, passing it on to his son. Aqui será capaz de gerar o homem puro, a raça imortal. But you can't help but think that both of these filmmakers are trying to cement their own immortality by creating these films and living eternally. We've got us on the gauntlet after both of these filmmakers have died looking at their work and thinking about them in certain immortal respects, right? We, we will always have these films as hard as they might be to get to track down and as beat up as both of the copies are. Yeah. But there's something at the heart of both of them that just, they have similar goals set in mind. I mean, you know, shoot for the moon and if you miss, you'll land in the stars, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, these films both fall into a, a, a sort of like, kind of film that I automatically love, which is uh, The Man You Love to Hate, you know, like going all the way back to Von Stroheim, who would cast himself as the the shitty villain of his movies. I think here we both, especially in the case of, of Coffin Joe, right, he's casting himself as 
the pariah of all of Brazilian society who goes against what everyone believes. Uh, and, and same for, for Clarence, although he wants to be, you know, loved uh, in a way that Coffin Joe certainly does not, you know? Yeah, maybe that's like the first big departure between the two. Uh, it's very clear from The World's Greatest Sinner that, you know, this is, you know, whether it's Carrie's mission or whether it's simply God Hilliard's, like the the deep, deep burning desire is to be worshipped, to be loved, to be adored, to be followed, to be respected, to be feared, you know, all of that wrapped up into one nice, neat package uh, where, yeah, you know, Coffin Joe, as you pointed out, um, seems to simply be annoyed by everyone around him. Like, you know, kind of a Larry David-esque character. He thrives. He thrives on the conflict, which is great because there's a particular moment in the film where he's like talking to the, the ladies that he's kidnapped and he's like, I hate drama i keep saying i hate drama and i'm like dude you are like the messiest bitch of all time like you are nothing but drama and this is even like ryan you know i hadn't seen any of these films and i also watched the first one and in the first 10 to 15 minutes of that film he walks into a bar and cuts off the fingers of another man he's playing in a poker game yeah and there's just like severed fingers rolling around on this <laughs> table and he's like I got all these witnesses and he's like god that i was, hate that drama was, yeah he's like that was self-defense i had nothing to do with that you know yeah. i mean it's incredible it was really interesting watching the first one ahead of this because they are very different in, in certain respects while also having so much in common. I mean, it does feel like just a natural extension of the first one where it, he just spends more time talking about the same stuff and tech, talking about it ad nauseum almost. But the first one really does feel like a dream. I mean, Andy, when you were describing your first encounter with World's Greatest Sinner... That's already how I feel about Ed Midnight, I'll Take Your Soul. There are elements of that movie I just don't even remember, and I watched it last Friday, right? And then watched the sequel a couple days later. And it's just, it came to me in a haze, like a nightmare. You know, it did feel like this was reminiscent of the nightmares he must have been having. And it's rougher, you know, the audio quality is much, much worse. And I mean, the sequel isn't the you know, prettiest picture, all things considered, but it is, I mean, it is decidedly more clean visually mm -hmm. than the, the first coffin Joe. He, he clearly had more resources. I think him coming in as a producer to really, you know, take the reins on everything he wanted to do, maybe have, might've given him a little bit more creative control, albeit of course for the ending, which we won't, we'll get into later, but it is, yeah, it, it's something he had more resources for to, to take ownership over and it, it did feel like he was attempting to have a more clear-sighted version of his vain vision 
as opposed to whatever the hell that first movie is. <laughs> I mean, it's classic sequel stuff, too, because there is just, like, more time for him uh, espousing, you yeah. know? Like, you can really feel, like, the first one feels like a dream because it's ruthless and efficient. It just, like, these incidents just keep happening, and then the movie, like, ends horrifically. And this one... Yeah, in between these set pieces that he's created, uh, there are just these long stretches of him filming himself giving the Coffin Joe speech, you know, <laughs> like talking about how he, you know, fuck God and all that stuff, right? Mm -hmm. um, it really struck me in this, this second one that he almost feels like, at a certain point, like a game show host. Wow. There's a an element of the film when he has all these kidnapped women, right, where, yeah, like, as Ryan said, it's like, I'm going to put you through these tests. But, like, the way he's behaving is like a reality show host. Like, he's set up, like... A reality show in, yeah. in Fear Factor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Honestly, it is like that because, of course, um, you know, just to ruin my life because I've got a bit, you know, I'm a bit of an arachnophobic person, you oh, know? Yeah. And uh, in the first film, there's one tarantula. And in this film, he unleashes like 500 tarantulas oh, yeah. on <laughs> these like women wearing, you know, see-through 90s or whatever. <clears throat> and I, I, you know, I had to look away. Too spidery for me. <laughs> Very spidery. Very I fa spidery. I failed Coffin Joe's Fear Factory Challenge. <laughs> yeah. Man, that's so good. I could totally have seen Coffin Joe pulling out uh, like a wired microphone from underneath his cape at any point during those trials. Yeah. It would have felt appropriate and it would have just felt like a nice touch. I wouldn't have even questioned it. Yeah, but so while while Coffin Joe Two, you know, does feel a bit more produced, right? The world's greatest sinner has that rough, pure brain drip quality of like a truly vain "Hello, everybody" backyard movie. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's janky. Some of the cutting is nuts. The sound, the way it just refuses to be overlapped how often you feel like you've just been shifted in the room as if someone tugged on your chair in the middle of a scene it's it's crazy but it contributes to this incredible effect i felt like i was hanging out with the world's greatest sinner you know but yeah there's a purity in that form too of just something that was totally tossed together I mean, there's a there's a imp really impressive element to it for how broke it is. There is like all this use of like stock footage and stolen shots that that is very impressive, and reminded me in a certain uh, to a certain extent of of when we talked about Doris Wishman, just like this extreme lack of resources leading to a cut you've never seen before. And maybe there's a reason you've never seen that cut before, but you're going to get those kinds of cuts in this movie. And, you know, very famously, uh, Cassavetes said... 
that the film, The World's Greatest Sinner, had the brilliance of Eisenstein, and Timothy Carey then put that on the poster at a a certain point. Um, But that's, you know, to me, that's what Cassavetes is talking about, this sort of just insane resourcefulness uh, where especially, you know, these, like, rock and roll shows and these scenes, like... You know, those are stolen shots, you know, and, and there is that element of it. Yeah. And, you know, I, it, it makes sense um, because Carrie, who had been a collaborator with Cassavetes and and at that time, that that sort of that whole cohort and what they represented, what they they deeply believed in, what they strived for, which was to to bring a more like raw and instinctual approach to filmmaking and certainly, certainly to acting and, and performance and, and uh, you know, how that clashed so intensely with the, the classical approach and the classical Hollywood approach of, of clean filmmaking of crisp edits and certainly with, with, you know, very, um, you know, what Hollywood would certainly refer to as, as sort of like psychologically real characters, you know, in other words, um, very unrealistic people in the view of Cassavetes, of Peter Falk and Ben Gazar and Jenna Rollins and that whole crew, you know, that that's also what's really interesting about this film is that, uh, you know, aside from Timothy Carey, most of the cast seem very, uh, you know, I, I hesitate to say amateurish, but it's clear that they aren't quite as as well versed in uh, film acting as Timothy Carey. And, and, and that, I think, also contributes to that same kind of quality that you're describing. You know, aside from the film's construction, it's just that, you know, his presence in every scene like is so unnerving because he is on such a very different level yeah just a lot of people look standing around looking stunned as uh you (laughs) know god hilliard uh, goes off again oh my goodness gracious yeah i mean again like you were you were saying marston it's kind of like uh you know, Coffin Joe is sort of like the, the the host of fear factor and, and you know, putting all of these people through a series of games. I mean, that's exactly what's going on here as well. I think this is like Timothy Carey just sort of testing and challenging every single person around him, you know? Can you hang? Can you handle this? Can you hold on for dear life as I gyrate, gesticulate, shout, sweat, scream, sing... I mean, it is a, it is, a, and I've used this term before, I think, right? When we have an actor who puts together a, a really impressive performance, you know, like you think of something like Burt Lancaster and Elmer Gantry, and they're sort of like a whirlwind. But like, man, I think in this case, like, I, I didn't really understand what a whirlwind was you know ryan is always a fan of my my revelations of my my moments of being like i didn't know what the fuck this meant you know and like no no, no 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 i was wrong like i didn't know what a what a whirlwind looked like until i watched this film and saw all of these people you know like clinging by their fingernails to their interactions with this very very troubled man you know gil Barreto, who plays alonzo 
who was in the whole movie, you'll notice, uh, did say, you know, after the fact that one of the big problems with the film was people's inability to hang. (laughs) And uh, in in particular, you know, uh, it's, uh, he said, you know, as as the performance of God went along, uh, Timothy maybe started to become a little bit like his character and uh they had a lot of trouble keeping cast and and people involved over uh you know the the four or five six years i mean beretto himself claimed that they were shooting uh into 1965 when he eventually ran out of money so oh wow yeah like they had problems uh you know hanging that makes sense because I think about this line from the movie that comes pretty early on when he's deciding. He lets everyone off at uh, Anchorage Insurance. He sends everybody home because he's like, fuck it, insurance sucks. But he has a line where he mentions, it's simple arithmetic. I'm bored. And when he <laughs> says that, it just sounds like it's coming straight from Timothy Carey's heart. And it kind yeah. of makes me think about what you were even describing, Andy, in terms of this new school of acting and the style and American independent cinema. Timothy Carey was probably getting bored of being put in these studio workmanlike productions. He was getting antsy. And this is where all of that energy gets unleashed. And you can feel everyone else in the cast being a little bit uncomfortable by that because we've got a feral man that is just... Just, mm-hmm. He's like, everyone, you have to be on board with me. Like, come along with my mission. It's simple arithmetic, Charlie. I'm bored with the insurance profession because I'm fed up with everybody where they scrape and screw and they pay to save for their insurance policies. You know, if life was eternal, Charlie, then one could stay in an insurance office and work with it, but time is short. We've got to make use of it. But then you wouldn't understand that, would you? The only thing you care about is insurance policies. How upset can you be? Why don't you give me the day off, Charlie? You can have the rest of the year off. Thank you. You know, yeah. he's leading them like a cult throughout the production. That's what it feels oh, like. Well, you 100%, know, percent that really that really makes the opening even better then, right? Because as we're introduced to Clarence, there's these very like unnerving shots of him and his whole family on a horse that they have at their house, you know? And and so, like, now I'm thinking, like, yes, this is like Timothy Carey in the Hollywood movie. He's, like, on last this... Last wagon. Yeah, he's on the last <laughs> wagon, getting beat up by Richard Widmark, for real, you know? And he's on the horse with this family, like, oh, I'm living... I'm this idyllic suburban man. I work at the insurance company. Mm-hmm. But the reality, Timothy Carey is fucking bored, you yes. know? And yeah. I think you're totally right. Uh I love that shit of them on the horse. It's just like... Oh, yes. This is the place where a simple average American family lives. There's Clarence, my boy. Just like any other male. The only difference is he wants to be God. And that's coming right out of the horse's mouth. There's Edna, his loving wife and her brood, following Clarence to the very end. She had no choice. Such an unnerving way to start. It is. And then especially when there's that later scene in the middle of the night, and this movie is just enshrouded in darkness. I mean, it could just be because of the copy, right? Like, the way the scan happened, there was just no dynamic range. But when it's nighttime, and he's whispering in the ear of his horse, and that's something that, you know, maybe if you saw in a Hollywood Western in the 50s would be 
tender, like, you know, a man in his relationship with his horse, and he's sharing his wisdom and his secrets because he can only trust his steed, right? Here, it doesn't feel like that. You understand me probably likes more than the other people understand me. Why don't you go to sleep, Amirex? Your master's gonna be somebody. I'm gonna make people live long. I'm gonna put something into life. I'm gonna make life be eternal. I'm gonna do it, Rex. I know you're not laughing at me. I know you won't laugh at me, Rex. Someday people will never die. You know, there's there's darkness here. Here's a man whispering secrets into his horse's ears about his grand plan of what he's going to do to just totally destabilize this perfect little storybook world that he's in. I mean, the film even has a narrator at the beginning that's leading us in like it's just a traditional 1950s happy nuclear family, you know? And here he is making his plans. But the brilliance, too, of that opening with him and his family um, is that, you know, again, talking about like the threadbare production quality and the fact that they, they would probably arrange these shoots and be like, this is the day, no matter what we're, we're shooting, you know, <laughs> <laughs> this scene or whatever is that, you know, it like begins with like, yes, this very almost like, you know, uh, a, a documentary, you know, analysis of the American family, a typical American family and, and explaining all of them. And we do see their happiness and them climbing onto the horse and we're introduced to Alonzo, the gardener, and they're all smiling and laughing. And it starts to become like maniacal how much they're laughing. And as the scene progresses, it starts raining and it is pouring rain by the end of that sequence and Alonzo's like pushing around his lawnmower in the pouring rain with his entire family like yeah. you know up there holding on to him for dear life on this horse and they're all like cackling like like boy aren't we all having a blast out here and I mean I cannot emphasize how hard it's raining Alonzo trips <laughs> slips on the wet grass falls laughs. I mean, it is, by the end of it, it's like surreal. Oh boy, that Clarence, my greatest possibility since the Apple incident. Don't let me down, Clarence. Don't let me down, boy, whatever you do. <laughs> but again, you know, Ryan, like, I, I think it's a really like astute point, you know, about the idea of like Timothy Carey being bored. Uh, and, and I think that's the case for Cassavetes, you know, and I'm sure in all their conversations was just like, man, we're just making these paint by numbers. We're, we're clocking in and clocking out of the dream factory. Mm -hmm. And like their mission was that to, to strip us bare, to strip that kind of artifice off of us, off of uh, our, our passive consumption of of entertainment and and life and our our relationships with one another, like we're seeing something we shouldn't see. It's it's too much. It's too revealing. It's 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 too in your face, you know. And it goes to show you, just like Orson Welles said to Peter Bogdanovich, you know, the problem with films is they're canned. 
they come in a can, the film reel, you know, like, <laughs> and that's exactly it, you know? And, and it's like, it's crazy to, to kind of see this movie and, and, and on a certain level, see it almost from when they began this, that it kind of predates a lot of the really intense Casavetta shit to come. Yeah, so it's pre-shadows. Yeah, it's pre-shadows, man. I mean, like, it makes you wonder, like, did, did Carrie, like, you know, bring a revelation to Cassavetes where Cassavetes was like, Oh my God, this guy fucking gets it. Like, Holy shit. What am I doing? It's crazy thinking about that movie, even coming in a can. I feel like it would have to come in a bag, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, like a wrinkled paper bag. Yeah. yeah, and you know, to your point, Andy, uh, one of Carrie's like sort of classic lines, you know, when people would ask him why he made the movie, he would say, uh, you know, Hollywood's always advertising movies as controversial. I'll show them controversial, <laughs> you know? It was sort yeah. of like just that basic attitude. He, yeah, it was, it was this reaction against, fluff and that fluff that you know he was complicit in of yeah. course so there's like that self-loathing aspect to it uh as well it's funny thinking about that opening scene of world's greatest sinner and then also thinking about one of the very first scenes of coffin joe 2 when coffin joe saves that boy who is about to be run over on the street because you know, if memory serves, again, it's a bit of a haze. There's almost no noble acts of Coffin Joe in the first film uh, in At Midnight, I'll Take Your Soul. He's pretty much just doing bad shit the whole time. Well, he hasn't developed his uh, pro-children philosophy yet. That's right. like, come, that comes after, yeah, the the first one. And then he's got this this new wrinkle in, in Coffin Joe-ism, you know. Right, which I really thought was so funny because it's... Makes me wonder who he's trying to convince both Coffin Joe himself and also Marines, the filmmaker, in making a, a subsequent film and wondering maybe how did people react? Well, I should come out like very pro-children at the at the initial onset of this production, right? Here's like a noble task I can do because it kind of fits in with his idea. Like if he does want the immortality of his blood, he has to have somewhat of a heart for children, maybe because he seems them as a bit more innocent and less corrupt. Well, you know, there's, there's something else to it that again, I think um, connects these two films and the filmmakers and their perhaps like ultimate mission, you know, beyond of course, showcasing themselves. But in Coffin Joe. I guess we're calling it Coffin Joe Two. <laughs> you can call it whatever you yeah. want. That's what yeah. Ryan's calling yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> when he's like talking about that, and like when he's talking about children as like perhaps like his only, you know, like moralistic aspect of of being, or the only the only positive quality he can kind of offer to the world. You know what he says about children. You know he talks about their purity, but the other thing that he says. And he says this several times, is that, you know, children are instinctual. Children operate on instinct. Like, that's the phrase that he uses. And he sort of like, you know, puts that up against the world that we live in. You know, a world of war, a world of, I think the phrase he uses, uh, you know, the, the triumph of lies. You know, he's talking People about People dominated by imaginary power. Exactly. You know, he's talking about all these like, 
you know, these conformists, these people who go along with a world that that has brought us to the brink of nuclear destruction, you know, or in the a 1960s. military dictatorship. Or a military <laughs> dictatorship, right? In one country or another. And for him, like, the reason to protect children to save them is because they're they're instinctual. They haven't yet been assimilated. They haven't yet been, like, crushed. They haven't yet had their imaginations uh, colonized by these various entities, right? Eis a mais perfeita obra da natureza, a criança. Pena que cresçam e se transformam idiotas. Man, imagine if Coffin Joe had a similar platform as God Hilliard. It's it's funny thinking about how his only real audience, Coffin Joe's, is these townspeople that just hate his guts because he's stealing their daughters. And even if he hasn't totally stolen one of them, right? Like there's the colonel whose daughter starts aligning herself with Coffin Joe. And so that starts pissing him off because he's like, God damn it. Like, I don't want my daughter like fraternizing with that freak. But it's funny imagining, right? Like if if Coffin Joe had gotten outside of that circle, and maybe that's something that happens in the later films. I, I obviously haven't seen them. But thinking about Coffin Joe on stage with a crowd like God Hilliard has in World's Greatest Singer when he is wiggling and doing his performance. Uh, giving Coffin Joe a microphone, that's something I kept thinking about, having these films next to each other. Like, how would a crowd react in Brazil, you know? He should have picked up a guitar. That was kind of his, his ultimate failing, you know? Wouldn't be able to play guitar with those nails, I'll tell you what, though. That's the, <laughs> yeah. that's the big issue. Yeah. That's true. Gilles Deleuze, steal this look. <laughs> You guys know that about Deleuze, oh, right? Yeah. He had very long fingernails, Ryan. Not that long, though, right? Pretty long. Long enough that people like noted that they were long. Yeah. And he was quite embarrassed about when people would bring that aspect up because he became oh, wow. like almost like a hermit later in life, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Stole coffin Joe's look, dude. <laughs> Joe's fingernails are a lot longer in the second one than they were in the first taking the time to grow them out well, I again guess. dude this sequelitis <laughs> everything's gotta yeah. be bigger you know you know thinking about thinking about world's greatest sinner as something that began you know in the late 1950s i guess it is pretty remarkable that it does sort of predate like the british invasion and that kind of uh sort Kitchen of sink realism well and just like the rock and roll frenzy oh, of sure. it all you know mm -hmm. like and that's what like scorsese said about the film it's a, one of the great rock and roll films right <laughs> and i think because they see in the way carrie's treating it as yes this i mean the original title of the film was frenzy because he's whipping everyone up into this uh, <laughs> frenzy through his music and through his uh you know superhuman being philosophy uh that's one of the great pleasures of the film of course is timothy carey saying and i quote Superhuman being. Superhuman being. Over uh, about and over 5, again. Five thousand times. Transillion is gonna make you a superhuman being. The average person is a superhuman being. Yeah, you make a nice drinking game out of that, dude. <laughs> superhuman being. Superhuman being, man. I taught you to be a superhuman being. Superhuman being will live forever. <laughs> But, you know, I, I did want to, like, point out, too, or at least bring this up, but, like, I um, felt like, uh, you know, there, weren't there actually, like, three titles on display 
in the film because isn't the very we get like a weird double title sequence almost yeah. with this because again like Timothy Carey is just he's all instinct but like the first title card isn't it Rock God or the fanatical cult of the world's greatest sinner then we get this like intro and then we get the world's greatest sinner as the title card. So we get this, like, you know, we've talked about double climaxes on the pod, but I think this is the first, you know, double credit, you know, double title card <laughs> yeah. we've ever had on, on the podcast. Right. It is odd because the presentation we saw was still sourced from the TCM underground, like presentation of whenever that happened on TV. And that copy still includes like the leader you know, we see the countdown and then it enters into that double title card sequence. And I know there's a new, there is a new restoration of World's yeah, Greatest the Singer. the Academy screened it like last month. So yeah. we kind of blew it with the timing because that'll probably come out, you know, sometime. But I think it, for this like vain project and this purely independent spirit, it made sense to have this thing like smuggled to us. You know, it feels appropriate to see it in these conditions. But I'm curious to see what the runtime is of this restoration. You know, what is preserved? <laughs> well, you know, I did learn one crucial thing thing ryan you know the version that you and i watched does not have the color sequence i watched when andy watched oh the way of, of which film are you talking about world's greatest yeah. sinner yeah, yeah yeah there's a color sequence in the world just at the end the beginning is red and at the end of the film which we'll talk about later it does suddenly everything becomes red and god hilliard is swallowed up by just this pure redness at the the blood at the end of the film. Oh wait, okay, I think I yeah, okay, I saw I saw that. Yeah, oh, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. <laughs> because of course, in this night, all possess your corpse. There is a very notable color sequence as well. And I don't know if we want to, you know, if we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but there is uh, a dream sequence, or is it, uh, where? Our guy, Coffin Joe, having dispatched of of many bodies, left many corpses in his wake, uh, like in the first film, begins to uh, sort of be haunted by his behavior. And he imagines himself in hell in a, a truly remarkable sequence. It's like a bolt of electricity, because that's right about the point in the film where... I mean, if you already found some of his monologues a bit intolerable, that's when it's like really starting to, to, to be a bit grating. Like, I don't know if I want to listen to this guy talk anymore. And then we're presented with this unbelievable psychedelic vision of hell. I think it was shot on Eastman color. I think that's what I read, which is why it has that really unique color palette. I mean, it's lit sort of like a Mario Bava movie yeah. with all of these extreme primary colors. And 
it's also this weird inverted version of hell where everything feels very cold. Like the room itself looks very, very chilly as opposed to obviously like being engulfed in flames. But the design of that sequence, I mean, I could have watched that for another 15 minutes <laughs> if he just wanted to put me through it. I mean, seeing all of those limbs, I mean, there's boobs hanging out of the wall. There's just all these different appendages of different people just like sticking through the walls of hell as there's other people standing around screaming in agony. And when he's just, when he's initially dragged into hell too, when he wakes up in the middle of the night and there's just this figure that is really, really tall, really thin, completely covered in black paint, just this like demonic presence that drags him into it. And then of course he does in hell not see himself as God, he sees himself as the devil. (laughs) Yeah, and my favorite thing about all of that is that he's in his jammies as he's wandering (laughs) through hell, shivering from, like, the snow that's, like, falling from the cave. His coffin jammies. But it's, it's really, like... I mean, it, it's it's really wild. I, you know, it made me think of, like, society, yeah. you know? Yeah. Like, in terms of just these, like, grotesque kind of surreal portrayals of limbs. And it's very, like, Dante's Inferno, like, going through all these different levels and configurations yeah. of, like, tormented bodies. Yeah, and various punishments. I mean, at, at first we see, like, just a guy making the rounds from all these people who are... <laughs> You know, strung up and suspended, and he's just poking them with a with a large like pitchfork, you know, or a trident of some kind. And then, like later in the sequence, the one that was really getting me <laughs> visually was there's now just a guy going around with a hammer and a chisel and going right up to people's foreheads and just striking this <laughs> hammer onto a chisel, like into their skull. Like, oh my gosh, honestly, like. Some of the most like vivid uh, imagery of hell I've seen in, in any film. Like, to, to give credit where credit's due, there's a lot of really ridiculous things about, you know, just the sort of like spooky Halloween world, you know, it's uh, that, that you know, Coffin Joe seems to surround himself with. But this sequence, the entire sequence, as you've described it, of, of him being dragged, that that figure that that takes him there and then of course this like shocking blast of color i mean it's it's unsettling it's it's actually like frightening to me well i mean it's amazing it really is stunning but oh my god that guy whose job was just to hammer in those chisels in everybody's head and it used the sound effect that you would like hear in a Hollywood movie of, you know, railroad workers hammering a nail into oh. the into the railroad tracks. <laughs> Man, I could feel that in my teeth, dude. I just <laughs> ugh. And I think, you know, I think that sequence too is so powerful because it gets to sort of like the heart of 
the Coffin Joe character, which is that he, like most people, is a massive hypocrite, mm-hmm. right? And he fears hell, you know, ultimately deep down, despite what he says, you know? It's not sadism, it's science, right? That's yeah. that's what he's all about. But um, no, he is a, a massive hypocrite. And I think that's sort of like why he works as such a good boogeyman, you know, to sort of like 1960s Brazil, just being like this massive hypocrite because like, I mean, like, as you said, this is the guy who, who announced that he doesn't like drama after (laughs) dumping 150 tarantulas on six kidnapped women simply to test who would be the one to withstand that abuse. And he's created like his own esoteric belief system that supersedes all belief systems while decrying anyone who believes anything. Right. And and that's, you know, that's the sort of like cosmic joke. And that's also like why he's scary. He's all of us. He's the people who are religious. He's the atheist going door to door trying to shock you. You know, <laughs> he embodies all of these contradictions. Yeah. And that's why it's so you know, we're talking about this idea of them presenting themselves as immortal and at war with God, and then even him depicting himself as Satan in hell. That is, if even though he's so resistant to these belief systems, there's something that he can't quite shake from himself. It kind of stands in for how I presume Marine was dealing with this character because yeah obviously jose mojica marin does not like (laughs) i don't think he actually believes in immortality of blood in in (laughs) this respect i mean it's a bit of supposition i'm just gonna assume that this isn't like what he has his heart set on and doesn't want to like actually do stuff like this i just assume he's a struggling brazilian catholic right you know yeah absolutely (laughs) but he's clearly so haunted by all of this stuff and so preoccupied with it that it you can't help but feel that these ideas are just swirling around in his head. And he's like, I have to just present this as this boogeyman. This is how, this is my outlet. I mean, it makes sense that this whole thing came to him in a nightmare. And then when he's dragged into hell, it's because he's thrown on top of a series of graves that have arms that come up from the dirt and pull him in head first below the surface. You know, it's it's going even farther than his original nightmare took him. He's driving deep into his own psyche. <laughs> Whereas I think Timothy Carey actually believes that he is a superhuman being (laughs) and that he can live forever. The superhuman being is I, and the idea is even more super. Oh, yeah. I mean, and that's, you know, that's sort of like his platform you know, when you get down to it, right, is he's he's actually, he's literally promising immortality because, you know, if we cast away, you know, God and all these other beliefs we have, we can just put all our money into uh, technological medical advancement. He, like, brings that up where it's like, all this money will just go to medicine and we'll live forever. And it's like, oh, shit. Okay, you know, like, you know, I'm, li- I'm listening, you know, but... Um, yeah, it's no. science fact. <laughs> <laughs> but right, he he believes in himself as God, you know, and that's what he says in the beginning. I'm gonna do what nobody's ever done. I'm gonna make myself a god. Yeah, <laughs> yeah what what nobody's first of all, not a very original thought, you know. Yeah. But 
But it certainly seems to him like quite an epiphany. Um, and I guess, yeah, it's it's an interesting point to like kind of get into their platforms a little bit more that, you know, we've we've tried to sort of suss out here. Right. Because it's not quite uh, as as clear as they seem to believe, um, you know, and his, I guess, approach takes sort of big twists and turns, you know, like what this movie's about, where he's going, where he's going to put all of those chips, I think you mentioned, because even before the rock thing, he's like, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write the greatest goddamn book that's ever been written, you know? (laughs) And we see that that book gets rejected, you know? Mm -hmm. Of course it would. I can only imagine what a book (laughs) written by Timothy Carey would would actually read like. But but I even love how he kind of reacts to that rejection which is a very like independent filmmaker approach you know he says i don't even care if they reject my book i want to do another book another one but then he goes to the rockabilly concert the the performance of dennis the menace by the way that's what i called it because it is just this sort of like toe-headed blonde dude doing all kinds of crazy shit with a guitar and and being absolutely mauled and manhandled by the crowd. And we cut from that, like, stolen footage to just these crazy shots of a largely black audience, you know, at this club. And just Timothy Carey's, like, six-foot-four Frankenstein's monster body like looming over the crowd spiraling, spinning taking it all in and kind of coming to that realization that like nah, nah, that writing shit that's boring, that's dumb this is it, this is it and then he seemingly learns to play the guitar in like a matter of days, right? He sets about getting guitar lessons and and we get some very unconvincing guitar playing from him in his sort of rockabilly phase where he does become this or attempt to become this rock god. But from there, then it totally shifts again to politics, right? Politics. I've got to become not just like a senator, but the president of the United States. And I loved all the scenes of his sort of like cabinet. He'd have those like cabinet meetings where they'd kind of even discuss the platform, you know, like what do we really stand for here? And it's like, he kept like drumming it into them, you know, it's simple. It's so simple. Everybody will live forever. <laughs> you know, again, like you talk about the, like the science of him being like, yeah, and we'll invest in Texas. But I barely remember any of that, of him actually having like, well, sure, you know, they've made great advancements in cancer treatment. <laughs> you know, like there's none of that. It's just we're the eternal man's party, you know. But of all the dudes in his cabinet who suddenly are just kind of like, all right, well, I guess this is what we're 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 going for here. My favorite dude was the very meek man who who wanted to offer, you know, a slight amendment, you know, maybe something, a line item that we could include here. Do you guys remember that guy who's like the dictator clause? Yes. Yeah. We should have a resolution that no one man should have so much power that he can become a dictator. Is that agreed upon, Clarence? That guy, dude, that was my favorite guy. Like, in the midst of all this, you know, he's just like, can we also include a line that says, no one man should have enough power to become a dictator? And just the look on Carrie's face 
when he's like, mm. you know, he doesn't even like agree no. to it, but he just kind of like, yeah, it just leaves it hanging. And then it cuts <laughs> to him, uh, seducing an older woman, uh, <laughs> as part of his, as part of his fundraising. And I mean, yeah, there's a, there's a scene even where, you know, God, AKA Clarence meets with this like political, political operative uh and you know basically sells out and you know that's ultimately you know where god's headed right this this rise and then this fall and he gives up his guitar because you know the rahm emanuel character uh is like in the war room being like no you know guitar that's carnival shit yeah uh you're running for president now but you know did you like I had I had some trouble following really a lot of this stuff. You know, it, it's even unclear to me yeah. sitting here now what happened to his presidential run. Was it just that people were accusing him of being an atheist and a communist? Like, did I miss something? Like, no. it just all of a sudden it's like it's over for you, buddy. You know, like yeah, no. I mean, <laughs> I I think like. Like this entire movie, right? This thing was was built, and I I almost imagine that it was like shot in sequence. For sure, yeah. it's just like the various like whims over several years of of Timothy Carey, and and whenever he could like strike up the band again, or or get a new cast of people to sort of like sit around and and stare at him wide eyed, like maybe he forgot what they were doing suddenly or where they were supposed to be or that there were certain important sequences lost on the cutting room floor or in someone's garage or God knows where. But yeah, it is not clear. I mean, there's just an abrupt shift to him suddenly uh, having his his showdown with God. Yeah, his uh, crisis of faith, just like Coffin Joe. Yeah, yeah. because I, there is like that that sequence of people kind of attacking him for being an atheist, and and he does have this kind of like, I think that is featured in the moment where he's he's like giving this big speech on what is clearly like his back porch in you know wherever he lived in uh, in Southern California, <laughs> yeah. but El Monte, California. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it does feel like the cause and effect is really strange in the yeah. latter half of the film because at first I was trying to read it as you know they have that committee get together and just before that dictator line they have a debate about who should we hate. There's no use kidding ourselves. We've got to hate someone. I've read where it's worked to advantage too. It can't be the Mexicans, that's for sure. And the Puerto Ricans are tortured. Oh, how about the Catholics then? We're wasting time, gentlemen. Let's be different. Let's not hate anybody. They kind of go through, like, what needs to be our edge here? And that's when they talk about, no, I don't think we need to hate anybody. Yeah, we're going to be superhuman beings. We're going to be superhuman beings. And then again, with the qualifier, well, I don't think everyone or one guy should have all control here. And then at first I started reading it right as people were rebelling against him not having an actual platform that was just about anything at all because again it's just this vague sentiment of well if you give me all your money we're going to invest it in medical work and then everyone will be living and he starts having his own crisis of his 
proposed faith when his mother dies and he realizes like, oh, if I mean, if she can't live forever, then <laughs> maybe I'm full of shit. But <laughs> then, then I'm fucked. <laughs> then I'm fucked, yeah. But then the literal, I think my read on the second half of the film, as he designed it, moving forward, thinking about it, coming out at the speed of thought, to me, and this doesn't make sense in an actual logical level, just in the way he cut this movie, I think those people are rebelling because of the private transgressions he's having behind the scenes with his family and other people. Well, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Because I think in Timothy Carey's mind, those scenes of him seducing a 14-year-old girl and squeezing her toes as he's given her kisses, the way he treats his wife and his daughter... He throws his daughter across the room. That shit is insane. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All that stuff that no one on the streets are seeing i still think timothy carey's thought is well this communicates why people would <laughs> maybe have a problem with this guy <laughs> mm -hmm. and like i couldn't help but think like that was the broken but fascinating cause and effect of this film that we got to see those horrors and then everyone was rebelling because that's how you feel as an audience member watching the world's greatest sinner i mean maybe it's like between the lines he's like yeah i was also doing this shit publicly in front of everybody i just couldn't film those scenes you know? see and maybe maybe there's like the big difference between you know marin's approach and like carrie's approach because you know with with marin's i think in this film he really sort of starts to get it on you know that almost like hitchcockian level Right. That like ultimately, you know, for us, it's so much more fun to kind of anchor ourselves and maybe our perspective to the baddie, to the person who is stepping outside of of safe, moral America's approach and life, you know, that like, wouldn't we all like to live so much more liberated and free like Coffin Joe, because he in this film, like, does have moments of kind of being, I would say, less like the 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 villain and more the the kind of like naughty protagonist slash anti-hero. I mean, the forces that are eventually even rallied against him are are like just these kind of like disgusting thugs. And and Coffin Joe is a, a well-spoken man and he's got a soft spot for children. And, and certainly he's doing some shitty things along the way, but don't worry. He's also kind of struggling with that. You know, I think like <laughs> Marin's gets the idea. I think he just kind of gets the fun in it more. And like Carrie is just like trying to, to make this guy like as disgusting as possible mm -hmm. and and that's kind of like lost like the, the 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 sort of like fun in all of it and don't get me wrong like it's fun to watch this completely like unhinged uh you know pinball just slamming around like for <laughs> yeah. for 76 minutes or whatever but like but there's nothing really to like root yourself in or I guess you should say I could say there's nothing really to root for like in a weird way you kind of can root for coffin Joe you know I think yeah 
I, I was rooting for Coffin Joe when he was put at odds with Trunkador, who was like the <laughs> yeah, big dude. bald man with one eye. Yeah, the eye. big bald rough trade of the town. Dude. Yeah, yeah, that is like he is set to go after Coffin Joe by the colonel because of just some stuff Coffin Joe's doing with the colonel's daughter. So he hires Trunkador to take care of it, someone that Coffin Joe has already had like a pretty, you know, contested relationship with him and Trunkador do not get along. Um, and yeah, we have poker games where Trunkador loses everything. He attempts to like bring in all his boys, one of which I thought was a really funny, like exact opposite of Trunkador, this like really, really tall, crooked, skinny guy with like longer hair while Trunkador is like stout, but quite buff. Yeah. He kind of almost looks like the big bald man that gets uh, chopped up by the airplane propeller in Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, yeah. just like the Brazilian equivalent of that. But yeah, you can't help it. You're just like, look at this dork in his top hat and his cape <laughs> dealing with this big burly Trunkador. Like, like it's awesome when Coffin Joe throws all those dudes in the swamp and they come back up as bones, you know? It's yeah. it's like fun to watch. When Coffin Joe pulls a Comanche Todd and throws a hatchet in one of those dudes' faces, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. That violence was was like again, like for the time especially, like pretty shocking. Uh I mean it was like in in intense. I did love that whole like Rambo sequence you're describing. Yeah. But yeah, I mean like Coffin Joe is a like an embarrassing dude. Like his presence <laughs> yeah. is just like it's 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 cringeworthy. You know, I kept writing like He's just like a milady guy, you know, totally. like he's just like yeah. a fedora guy, basically. And like, mm -hmm. you know, m the modern parlance of like internet culture, like he's a neckbeard fedora guy. That's like a, he's like an incel, basically. Like, you know, like I've got to find the perfect, the reason I can't be with a woman is because I haven't found the right one yet. The purest woman for me, you know, yeah. and I've got it all figured out, but the world is broken and arranged but again i think like marin's like if you even want to give him like some sort of like i don't know like you know political kind of statement and at all i think again he's more in his depiction of these people and of the town and of everyone around him like he's kind of implicating everybody like you know the world is inherently a place of hypocrisy the world is inherently a place of like corruption and mm -hmm. corruption of the soul and and you know uh lying politicians who have gun thugs on the payroll and and priests who don't have a fucking clue but are happy to take you know whatever dimes you can give them to to sell you salvation and like timothy carey's character this lie of again i think like in the case of like god hilliard he's really just trying to make himself this sort of like exception and this 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 strange figure and i think that's why the film as it goes off the rails you know and it certainly goes off the rails in a major way it, it starts as presenting itself i think as this this big sort of like American satire. Ah, the typical insurance salesman who lives here with, you know, the, he's every man. But like, Timothy Carey's like drive, like 
just completely like just overwhelms it, overpowers it, wrestles it to the ground and stomps on it, knocks it unconscious. Like it, it, it it's less and less about America, uh, America in the late fifties or America in the early sixties and more just about like, like him. Right. So yes, it is a vanity project. And, and like his vanity completely like strangles, I think the, the sort of like broader view of religion, politics in the world, you know, I think the ultimate example of that for me comes in the sequence where he's supposed to have this big climactic revelation. You know, this like revelation where he, where he's kind of like, well, maybe I should go undercover. Maybe I should go undercover and, and, and see what this God guy is up to. My number one opponent, God Hilliard versus God. And he goes to this church and he, he puts on a disguise over the disguise that he's been wearing throughout the entire film, which we've described, you know, this like hilariously like, you know, bad fake triangular, very pointy triangular goatee. So he goes to church and, and there's like this really dramatic stock music or maybe it was Zappa. I can't really tell, you know, I, I was, but this really kind of dramatic buildup of him like entering the church undercover. He can't be seen. If God Hilliard, the man who has said God is dead, you know, if he is spotted in church, like, oh my God, that'll be the end of him, right? This will be the end of his camp. This will be the end of everything, everything he stood for. People see him in church. But I was laughing. This is such a threadbare production. And like, in his mind, I think the implication is that he is a huge national celebrity, right? That's certainly what he's tried to, to put out here. But I was just cracking up because in this church, he's like putting on this disguise and like, I was wondering were they like stealing these shots or something in this like church and like nobody is paying any attention to him whatsoever. Like no one is like, oh, is this, who is this man? Like what is going on here? And he's like just trying so desperately to play this like whole incognito thing. But I was also like, no one knows who this fucking guy is. Like, and he's going to such great lengths to put himself like, you know, un undercover. And I'm like, dude, you could have walked in there and and no one would have paid you a single like fucking mind at all. Well, it's funny then that these movies have the exact same ending. Um, I don't know, mm -hmm. like if if you guys felt the same way, they both find themselves confronting Come to God, God, baby. Yeah. yeah, because when he does do that church heist, he's bringing the, back the wafer heist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh the my wafer God. heist. He's yeah. like, I got to get some of that sanctified body of Christ back in my my place so I could really test it out. Because that's what we find at the end of both of these films. We have both of our vain heroes, quote unquote. Um, confronting God. Our sinners. Yeah, our sinners. In World's Greatest Sinner, he takes the communion wafer with a pin because he wants to see, you know, is this going to bleed? If I impale the body of Christ, will there be blood? And he just, yeah. you know, pokes it over and over again, obviously doesn't start bleeding. If this doesn't bleed, I'm positive that was my own weakness. Nothing else. But later when he leaves, there's a blood trail, this oozy blood trail of slime that he follows all the way back home. And that's when he's swallowed up by the redness at the end of the film. He has that vision of God that completely 
disrupts his reality and tears him apart. And then at the same time in Coffin Joe, the Brazilian censors came in and they demanded that Coffin Joe does have his come to God moment. That was something that Marin had mentioned was a curse upon his entire career because you seemingly think he's going to be an atheist to the very end. He's struck by lightning as a sign from God and a whole tree collapses on top of Coffin Joe and he's like burned up a little bit. The whole town's coming after him like it's Frankenstein in the 1930s with their pitchforks and torches. Coffin Joe's covered with this burned tree and he just proclaims to God, like, I still think this is all bullshit. Like, I don't think this <laughs> yeah. is a sign. Incredible <laughs> moment. I mean, like, that's, again, that's like the fun of, of Marin. Like, yeah. it's, he relishes in being this villain and he realizes, too, that it's funny. And that moment in particular, incredible. Like, the tree on top of him being like, well, certainly that could be an accident. Yeah, you lightning know? strikes like, trees. What the fuck? You know, right. I'm a man of science. And he shit happens. In, in both of the films, he is so firmly committed to his beliefs and so staunch and unshakable, even when the ghosts of the people he has murdered are haunting him <laughs> and cursing him and coming after him with hallucination snakes he still, you know, sticks to his guns until, of course, yes, the swamp ending of this movie as he's sinking and renounces his his belief. You it know? still feels like, I don't know, I thought he played it off really well, all things considered, with the censors coming after him. Because it's such yeah. a funny image of, you know, Coffin Joe sinking into the swamp and the skeletons of all the men that he had just killed are also rising and he's in the cesspool. There's a priest there who is offering him some type of repentance or at least saying like, come on, Coffin Joe, just come to God, you know? And he's like, fine, fuck it, whatever. He's like, maybe I'm not like totally an atheist. God's all right, yada, yada, yada. But to me, it reads as totally disingenuous and yeah. really, really funny. It's know? more it's more ironic, you know? It's it's a much more like kind of ironic ending to his to his journey. That that if you think about it, like the only way he can like change his view or relent on his his like you know, ultimate, you know, mission of, of total liberation is when literally the entire town is mobilized against him with pitchforks and torches and shotguns and rifles and God is throwing lightning bolts at him and <laughs> pinning him under literal burning bushes and, and the, the, the dead are rising from the... You know, it's like that much is required to take this like superhuman being and go like, fine, what do you want to do? What do you want me to sign? I'll sign it. Just give me a fucking break. Like, right. let me go. Let me go. You know? Like, yeah, I think it's a little bit more like ironic and again, you know, more, more, uh, more playful in that sense. And notably, his he's faced away from the camera when yes. he says it. And I yes. thought that that's a deliberate 
uh, action, you know, on his part to go, I'll say the words, but like, you know. And you know what's cool about that is is in that staging, uh, it's like he's shouting it into the night and he's like shouting it into this this sort of this darkness, this this black void, this abyss, if you will, you know, as we mentioned earlier, this also sort of became an unofficial spotlight on Nietzschean philosophy this week of both, you know, Carrie's drive for the, the superhuman being, the ubermensch perhaps, and Marin's also, um, you know, rejection of God and authority and religion and organization and all those kinds of things. So, so if anything, it's like, you know, he is uh, in this moment perhaps you know, he's stared into the abyss long enough, right? That's yeah. it. I think my favorite quotation uh, in the spake Zarathustra of Nietzsche, it's one that I've often brought up, is, I think, very appropriate for both of these films and the characters and the journeys they went on and perhaps even the vain men who made these films. You know, Nietzsche says, he who flies is hated most of all. I think that definitely applies to our friend Coffin Joe. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. Yeah, he's quite fly, <laughs> and he is very, very hated. So I was thinking about, you know, our pod and, and vanity projects, you know, thinking, like, we've had, we've had our, our fair share we uh, have. on this podcast and uh i'm gonna i'm gonna run through them and you can correct me if i'm wrong mm. or if i'm or if i'm missing any or if you disagree yeah we should vote on the end of this who is the most vain of all <laughs> well uh, i already know the answer to that it's <laughs> timothy Carey. yeah it's timothy <laughs> um, it's, all right haunted honeymoon vanity project mm. above the law the hunter night riders the House That Jack Built, The Family Jewels, Rambo Last Blood, Snow on the Bluff, Bullworth, Young Einstein, Dan Aykroyd Unplugged on UFOs, <laughs> the and The Private Eyes. Oh, wow, mm. yeah. Well, look, I mean, I think, you know... You know, tourist cinema always sort of lends of itself to 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 a charge of vanity, to a charge of of you know um, of that sort of thing. So you know, I think it's I think it's fitting. I think all of the films that you mentioned are are films that were designed for the people involved to either like have a good time or or really get their message out or you know, introduce themselves to the world. But I think, you know, for me, the true vanity project sets itself aside from, from like, from, from what we have had this week and, and maybe as well with like Yahoo serious, which is that it like, it has the same person yeah. like managing so many of the, the, the principal like departments, you know? So I think some of those I would give a slight pass to, yeah, you know, in the too. sense that there was like a different yeah. director involved or a writer involved. But, but I think the ones that, that have been like, you know, at the very least like written, directed and starring, those are, are certainly some of the more the more vain films we've yeah. had. At least Timothy Carey earns 
his applause and religious fervor during his rockabilly shows because it's almost borderline performance art when he's got that slippery outfit on and he's just like wiggling his body around his dad body. Just sparkling. Yeah. Like young Einstein, he doesn't earn that energy that he ends his film with. You no know, way. And that, that felt real vain because it's just like disingenuous. At least Timothy Carey put on a fucking hell of a show. See, and that's it, right? We talked, you know, Marsh, you, you, um, you pointed it out and it was very, very correct, you know, that, that Yahoo Sirius is, is a project of stolen valor. <laughs> and I got to say, for me, the films this week... No stolen valor. No. I mean, no. these are no plagiarism uh, these are holy, here. Yeah, wholly original. And even like if Coffin Joe is a fantasia of like German expressionist and classic Hollywood horror imagery, you know, the great universal horror pictures and and a slew of other great horror B films, you know, Jacques Turner comes to mind. Like, you know. I still see his project as as being in this kind of like facsimile and and you know potpourri like something that is really unique like it's a unique addition to these things like he created a a new character and one that Ryan pointed out in his intro you know I I discovered is is a like beloved icon in Brazil. Um so you know I I I I got to give it up to to both Timothy Carey and and Marins for uh, for like bringing something unique in that sense. I found on YouTube a MTV News uh, clip of White Zombie meeting Coffin Joe in 1996. So just FYI, uh, Rob Zombie met Coffin Joe uh, more than once. And that wow, uh, that fully tracks. Yeah. When you consider his whole like aesthetic and career, you want to talk about stolen valor, yeah, Rob Zombie out there stealing valor, <laughs> stealing Coffin Joe's valor. No, no doubt about it. Yeah, no. The two films we looked at this week are truly individual nightmares. Films that only belong to their creators. You know, like no one else could have made them. Um, so I guess Andy, I would ask. Maybe they yeah. don't necessarily need to be nightmares, but... Yeah, we brought you this psychotronic-ass double feature. Uh, <laughs> what about yeah. what about you? Yeah, and I mean, again, like like you'd sort of brought up, Marsh, this you know question of like, well, what really even is, like, I guess, classifying something as a vanity project? And in my mind, you know, bringing this topic this week, I was... There's plenty of films, especially, you know, I mean, look, you could argue that that weather report, right, or weather diary, it's it's a vanity project, right? Like, you could argue that. But to me, like, the difference there is is that I think a vanity project needs to be a little cringeworthy. It needs to be a little embarrassing for the person who made it. Uh, and, and, And they shouldn't be aware of the fact that it's embarrassing or cringeworthy, right? I mean, like... I guess for me, you know, I, I tend to lean towards things that I think are kind of kind of wackadoo a bit. And I, I guess if I had to to pick one that I that I I I really enjoy for the fact that it is so oh, just so like just slap your forehead. Um I, I gotta go to a friend of the pod, somebody that we've already had on here and somebody that you just mentioned. And that would be Mr. Steven Seagal in his directorial, I think only directorial output, which is the film on Deadly 
ground in which, you know, this, this like otherwise very forget action film is notable for climaxing not in a in a in a big shootout or a, a, a you know a, a martial arts display but with a nearly 10 minute monologue in which Steven Seagal goes all in on the oil companies car makers you know the various energy lobbyists the media the government capitalism everything in a massive attempt at a a a big like you know uh climate change uh activist speech i mean it's it's something really to behold i think for anyone um and yeah it's so unbelievably dorky so that one if people haven't seen on deadly ground like it is a must see in his very 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 sort of pathetic journey as a filmmaker and action star and one that is all his baby well it was andy's topic this week Next week, it is Ryan's topic. What do you have for us this time? I got a pretty straightforward one for us this time around. I've had some conceptual ones lately, so I thought I'd just take it a little easy. Molly and I recently went and caught Gold Diggers of 1933 at uh, Seattle's Grand Illusion Cinema. It was a beautiful print. It was a ton of fun. I had never seen it before, and we've also been on a kick of um, Harold and Lloyd, or not Harold and Lloyd, <laughs> Laurel and Hardy. Harold and Lloyd go to White Castle. <laughs> I've been on a kick of some, of some Laurel and Hardy films. And, you know, it just it, it reminded me of the fact that I think my favorite era of cinema that I neglect more than any other is the pre-code Hollywood period. Um, I feel like it's a huge blind spot for me. There's only a handful of them that I've seen, and I just get so jazzed whenever I watch them. So I want to see some some very, very naughty and fun pre-code Hollywood pictures next week. No problem. Yeah. Thank you. As always, you can follow <laughs> us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. A cruz, padre! A cruz! O símbolo do filho! Hear me. Hear me, please. I, I don't believe. I don't believe. Hear me. Please. Vera, show me something making me believe. Show me something. Mother, let me see what your prayers can do. God, Almighty, I defy you. I defy you to show me if you're God. If you're better than I am, if you're more than I am, show me. Let me see what I